This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. From the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Eric Banks. In today's episode of The Vault, we recall a visit by a titan of postcolonial literature, V.S. Naipaul. In 1979, Naipaul delivered a talk and a set of readings at NYU as part of the Institute's James Lectures. In the first of two archival episodes, he discusses reading and writing as a young man in Trinidad and reads excerpts from his 1971 novel, In a Free State. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here. It's nice to amuse oneself with one's work, but only if one has written very little. There comes a stage when it's rather difficult to face the mass of one's work. And it's a little bit, one does then share a little bit the reluctance of the majority of the public to scale the heights. Uh, I was given help, however, by Mel Gusser, and I'd like to acknowledge that at the start. I'll begin with a piece about reading and writing, which is of special interest for someone from that strange, limited, colonial background. As you've been told, I, I was born in, on Trinidad, which is a little island in the mouth of the Orinoco. And uh, to be born there was really to be born into a fairly incomplete place in every way. It's very hard for people who've been born into more complete societies to imagine what it is to be born in um, an incomplete place. And this is a piece about reading and writing there. It is called Jasmine. It was published in the Times Literary Supplement in 1964. To us, without a mythology, all literatures were foreign. Trinidad was small, remote, and unimportant, and we knew we could not hope to read in books of the life we saw about us. Books came from afar. They could offer only fantasy. To open a book was to make an instant adjustment. Like the medieval sculptor of the North, interpreting the Old Testament stories in terms of the life he knew, I, when I read, needed to be able to adapt. All Dickens's descriptions of London I rejected. And though I might retain Mr. Micawber and the others in the clothes the illustrator gave them, I gave them the faces and voices of people I knew and set them in buildings and streets I knew. The process of adaptation was automatic and continuous. Dickens's rain and drizzle I turned into tropical downpours. The snow and fog I accepted as conventions of books. Anything like an illustration, which embarrassed me by proving how weird my own reaction was, anything which sought to remove the characters from the makeup world in which I set them, I rejected. I went to books for fantasy. At the same time, I required reality. The gypsies of the mill on the floss were a fabrication and a disappointment, discrediting so much that was real. To me, gypsies were mythical creatures. Disappointing, too, in that book was the episode of the old soldier's sword, 
because I thought that swords belonged only to ancient times. And the Tom Tulliver I had created in my mind walked down the street where I lived. The early parts of the Mill on the Floss, then, chapters of Oliver Twist, Nicholas Nickleby, David Copperfield, some of the novels of H.G. Wells, a short story by Conrad called The Lagoon, all these which, in the beginning, I read or had read to me, I set in Trinidad, accepting, rejecting, adapting, and peopling in my own way. I never read to find out about foreign countries. Everything in books was foreign. Everything had to be subjected to adaptation. And everything in, say, an English novel which worked and was of value to me at once ceased to be specifically English. Mr. Murdstone worked. Mr. Pickwick and his club didn't. Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights worked. Pride and Prejudice didn't. Maupassant worked. Balzac didn't. I'm talking of that time, because I've changed about Balzac now. I'm talking about later, you know, now. I went to books at the beginning for a special sort of participation. The only social division I accepted was that between rich and poor, and any society more elaborately ordered seemed insubstantial and alien. In literature, such a society was more than alien. It was excluding. It made nonsense of my fantasies. And more and more, as I grew older and thought of writing myself, it made me despairingly conscious of the poverty, I mean spiritual and social poverty, and haphazardness of my own society. I might adapt Dickens to Trinidad, but it seemed impossible that the life I knew in Trinidad could ever be turned into a book. If landscapes do not start to be real until they have been interpreted by an artist, so until they have been written about, societies appear to be without shape and embarrassing. It was embarrassing to be reminded by a Dickens illustration of the absurdity of my adaptations. It was equally embarrassing to attempt to write of what I saw. Very little of what I read was of help. It would have been possible to assume the sensibility of a particular writer. But no writer, however individual his vision, could be separated from his society. The vision was alien. It diminished my own and did not give me the courage to do a simple thing, like mentioning the name of a port of Spain street. With all English literature accessible then, my position was like that of the Maharaja in Hindu Holiday. That's a book by J.R. Ackley, published in the 1930s. My position was like that of the Maharaja in Hindu Holiday, who, when told by the Christian lady that God was here, there, and everywhere, replied, but what use is that to me? Every writer is, in the long run, on his own, but it helps in the most practical way to have a tradition. The English language was mine. The tradition was not. Literature then was mainly fantasy. Perhaps it was for this reason that, although I had, at an early age, decided to be a writer, and at the age of 18 had left Trinidad with that ambition, I didn't start writing seriously until I was nearly 23. My material hadn't been sufficiently hallowed by tradition. I wasn't fully convinced of its importance, and some embarrassment remained. 
My taste for literature had developed into a love of language, the word in isolation. At school, that's the lesser school, not university as it's sometimes meant here, my subjects were French and Spanish, and the pleasures of the language were at least as great as those of the literature. And it was because I thought I'd had enough of both those languages, both now grown rusty, that when I came to England or went to England to go to the university, I decided to read English. This was a mistake. The English course had little to do with literature. It was a discipline seemingly aimed at juvenile antiquarians. It ignored the novel and much of the prose. By a common and curious consent, it concentrated on poetry, and it stopped at the 18th century. <laughs> I had looked forward to wandering among large tracts of writing. I was presented with texts. The metaphysicals were a perfect subject for study, a perfect part of a discipline, but really they had no value for me. Dryden, for all the sweet facility of his prose, was shallow and dishonest. Did his criticism deserve such reverential attention? Gulliver's Travels was marvelous, but could the tale of a tub and the battle of the books be endured? <laughs> the fact was, I had no taste for scholarship, for tracing the growth of schools and trends. I sought continuously to relate literature to life. My training at my old school didn't help. We had few libraries where I had grown up, few histories of literature to turn to. When we wrote essays on, say, Tartuffe, we wrote out of a direct response to the play. Now, at the university, I discovered that the study of literature had been made scientific, that each writer had to be approached through the booby traps of scholarship. There were the bound volumes of the publications of the Modern Language Association of America, <laughs> affectionately referred to by old and knowing young as PMLA. The pages that told of Chaucer's knowledge of astronomy or astrology, the question came up every year, were black and bloated and furred with handling, and even some of the penciled annotations, no Nora in the margins, had grown faint. I developed a physical distaste for these bound volumes and the libraries that housed them. There were discoveries, of course, Shakespeare, Marlowe, Restoration Comedy, but my distaste for the study of the literature led to a sense of being more removed than ever from the literature itself. The language remained mine, and it was to the study of its development that I turned with pleasure. It might not have been easy to see Chaucer as a great imaginative writer, but Chaucer as a handler of a new, developing language was exciting, and my pleasure in Shakespeare was doubled. In Trinidad, English writing had been, for me, a starting point for fantasy. Now, after some time in England, it was possible to isolate the word, to separate the literature from the language. Language can be so deceptive. It has taken me much time. I'm writing 15 years ago, remember. It has taken me much time to realize how bad I am at interpreting the conventions and modes of English speech. But while knowledge of England has made English writing more truly accessible, it has made participation more difficult. It has made impossible the exercise of fantasy, the reader's complementary response. 
I'm inspecting an alien society, which I yet know, and I'm looking for particular social comment. And to reread now the books which lent themselves to fantastic interpretation in Trinidad is to see, almost with dismay, how English they are. The illustrations to Dickens cannot now be dismissed by me. And so, with knowledge, the books have ceased to be mine. It is the English literary vice, this looking for social comment, and it is difficult to resist. The preoccupation of the novelists reflects a society ruled by convention and manners in the fullest sense, an ordered society of the self-aware, who read not so much for adventure as to compare, to find what they know or think they know. A writer is to be judged by what he reports on. The working-class writer is a working-class writer, and little more. So writing develops into the private language of a particular society. There are new reports, new discoveries. They are rapidly absorbed. And with each discovery, the society's image of itself becomes more fixed, and the society looks further inward. It has too many points of reference. It has been written about too often. It has read too much. Angus Wilson's characters, for instance, are great readers. They are steeped in Dickens and Jane Austen. Soon, perhaps, there will be characters steeped in Angus Wilson. The process is endless. Sensibility will overlay sensibility. The grossness of experience will be refined away by self-awareness. Perhaps in the end, literature will write itself out, and all its pleasures will be those of the word. A little over three years ago, now 18 years ago, I was in British Guyana. I was taken late one afternoon to meet an elderly lady of a distinguished Christian Indian family. Our political attitudes were too opposed to make any discussion of the current crisis, which is still going on, profitable. We talked of the objects in her veranda and of the old days. Suddenly, the tropical daylight was gone, and from the garden came the scent of a flower. I knew the flower from my childhood, yet I had never found out its name. I asked now. She said, we call it jasmine. Jasmine. So I had known it all those years. To me, it had been a word in a book, a word to play with, something removed from the dull vegetation I knew. The old lady cut a sprig for me. I stuck it in the top buttonhole of my shirt. I smelled it as I walked back to the hotel. Jasmine, jasmine. But the word and the flower had been separate in my mind for too long. They did not come together. That's jasmine. Well, from that background, writing has been, for me, a process of discovery, development. One has moved around the world. One hasn't had one society to write about. And part of the problems, as hinted at in that previous piece, have been taking figures whom you think you know because you've read other books about them and trying to look at them 
fresh. Well, here is one figure you might play with. The book is called In a Free State. It was written in 1969. It imagines a country like Uganda, and though written in 1969, it imagines a country like Uganda with a touch of Rwanda, and the Asians deported, and the Europeans under siege. You can imagine the outrage it caused when it was published. It didn't seem possible to people who had their own views that the continent could go that way. Bobby and Linda are English people, government servants in this independent African country, and they're driving back from the capital to their provincial compound several hundred miles away. It's a time, though, of tribal conflict, and they have to take a detour up to the mountains. They stop for the night at an all but abandoned European resort town at the edge of a lake. Ragged Africans are camping in the ruined doorless houses. They cook in the verandas. The streets are patrolled by wild dogs, the former watchdogs of European settlers who've gone away, and the dogs stayed behind to look after themselves. In this almost abandoned town, there is an army, though, a local army, being trained by Israelis, and there is a hotel, fairly derelict, run by a very old English colonel. The bush at this time is full of Africans taking oaths of solidarity and hate. An African has taken to coming to the hotel bar in the evenings in tattered European evening clothes, cast-off clothes he's discovered in a house. And in this half-parody, there is half a threat. The colonel, the old man, feels himself marked, and he's especially nervous of his head boy, Peter. He doesn't want Peter to take an oath, to drive off to the bush and take an oath. And this is the scene at dinner at the derelict hotel. Presently, the colonel came in with his stiff, halting step. He had a finger between his book. He was flushed. The gin was working on him. He looked about the dining room with satisfaction, as though it was quite full. He looked benignly at Linda. Have you read this? He lifted the book. It was by Naomi Jacob. Linda couldn't read the title. The colonel said, it's very good about the mentality of the Hun. Don't show me the menu, he said to the boy. I wrote it. I'll have the soup. Used to get them here. Those package stores from Frankfurt had to drop them. Bobby thought, you mean they dropped you? They would eat up your profits, the colonel said. Literally eat them up. We used to do a buffet for them. Terrible idea. Never offer the Hana buffet. He isn't happy until he's eaten every last scrap. He believes the new ham and the buffet is for him alone. There used to be a stampede. I saw two women fight. No, no, clear away the buffet as soon as you see the Han coming. Meet the horde at the door and say, it's strictly fixed portions today, gentlemen. <laughs> Linda said, they are tremendous eaters. Like the Belgians, the colonel said. Now, there's a crowd. We used to get lots of them here from the other side. The only thing you can say for the Belgian is that he knows a good bottle of Burgundy. Little of that sort of thing here now, though. Of course, a lot of this, he waved at the wire-netted windows at the darkness at the lake, a lot of this is their doing. They thought they would just come from little Belgium and start living the good life right away. No work, nothing like that, just the good life. There was this woman just before the troubles. She said to me, but it's our estate, the king gave it to us. 
You should see what they got up to over there. Mansions, palaces, swimming pool. You should have seen. There's these two tribes among them. Linda said the Flemings and the Walloons. The colonel said they sound the opposite of what they should be. The Walloons should be the fat ones, but they are rather thin and refined. <laughs> the Flemings should be thin, but they are fat. Ever seen a party of Flemings at the trough? They would order dinner for 10 o'clock and get here at 7. At 7, they would start drinking just to make themselves hungry. By 8, they would be hungry and nibbling at everything and getting the boys to run back and forth with more and more savouries. You've got to watch the savouries when the Belgians are around. <laughs> and they would keep on drinking and drinking, getting themselves hungrier and hungrier. The food's in here. The boys are waiting, but they said 10, and they're not coming in until 10. Until 10 o'clock, they're just building up their appetites. Quarrelling, shouting, playing cards, children screaming, everybody shouting at the boys for more savouries. There would be pandemonium in that bar from one little Fleming family party. Then at ten they would come in and eat solidly for an hour and a half, grunting and snorting together, mother, father, child. Everyone a little ball of fat. That was the sort of example they were setting. You can't blame the Africans. The Africans have eyes. They can see. The African's very funny that way. <laughs> you can drive him hard for weeks on end, but one day he'll gallop away with you. There was a crash in the kitchen and a burst of hyped chatter. One voice rose quickly to a squeal, which sounded like laughter, and then all the voices in the kitchen squealed together. The colonel became abstracted. He was no longer looking directly at Linda. The Israelis in the dining room talked softly. The tall boy came to clear away Bobby and Linda's plates and left a little of his stink behind. You saw that chap in the evening dress, the colonel asked. Bobby frowned. Linda was about to smile, but she saw that the colonel was not smiling. He's been coming here for a month or so. Ever since he picked up those evening clothes, I don't know who he is. Linda said he was awfully polite. Oh, yes, all very polite, but he comes to put me in my place, you know. Isn't that so, Timothy? The tall boy, the waiter, stood still and raised his head. Sir, he would like to kill me, wouldn't he? Timothy remained still, the tray in his hands, and tried to look serious. He said nothing. He relaxed only when the colonel went back to his food. One day they'll gallop away with you, the colonel said. With quick, long strides, Timothy went to the kitchen. A fresh voice was added to the squeals there, and then the voice abruptly withdrawn and a grieved squealing going on. Timothy came out again, still brisk, still serious, and went to the table of the Israelis. The colonel said, I remember how we train men for Salonika, India, and places like that. Sometimes we had to strap them to the horses. Ah, wah, wah! You would hear them bawling at the other end of the ground. Some of them developed rashes an inch thick, but we'd make riders out of them. We'd get them off to Salonika, India, or wherever it was. He looked directly at Linda again. These names must sound strange to you. I suppose the name of this place will sound strange soon. The squealing in the kitchen died down. The colonel became abstracted again, busy with his food. A tall, slender African, dark brown, not black, came out into the dining room from the kitchen. He moved lightly, like an athlete. He nodded and smiled at the Israelis, at Bobby and Linda, and went to the colonel's table. 
the mobility and openness of his face made him look less like an African than a West Indian or American mulatto. He wore simple clothes with much style. His well-tailored khaki trousers were clean and ironed. The collar of his grey shirt was clean and firm. His cream-coloured pullover suggested the sportsman, the tennis player or the cricketer. There was a parting in his hair and his brown shoes shone. He stood before the colonel and waited to be seen. Then he said, I come to say good night, sir. His accent had echoes of the colonel's accent. Yes, Peter, you're off. We heard the crash and we heard you squeal. Where to this time? I go cinema, sir. The pigeon English was a surprise. You've seen our local bug house, the colonel asked Linda. I suppose that will close down when the army goes. If the army goes, the Israelis didn't hear. And what are you going to see, Peter? The colonel asked. The question confused Peter. He continued to look at the colonel. His face held a half smile and then went African blank. He said, I can't remember, sir. That's the African for you, the colonel said. The words were spoken at Linda, but not addressed to her. Peter waited, but the colonel was occupied with his food. Peter became composed again. The half-smile returned to his face. He said at last, I go, sir. The colonel nodded without looking up. Peter moved away with his light athlete's step. His leather heels sounded on the floor of the bar, the veranda. As soon as they touched the concrete steps, the colonel slammed the sauce bottle down and shouted, Peter! Bobby jumped. Timothy held his face straight as though he'd just been slapped. Even the Israelis looked up. It was silent in the dining room, the bar, the kitchen. Then, as lightly as his leather heels permitted, Peter came back to the dining room and stood before the colonel's table. The colonel said, Give me the keys for the Volkswagen, Peter. Keys in office, sir. That's a foolish thing to say, Peter. If the keys were in the office, I wouldn't be asking you for them now, would I? No, sir. So it's a foolish thing to say. Foolish thing, sir. So you are very foolish. Peter was silent. Peter! Foolish thing, sir. Don't say it with so much pride, Peter. If you are foolish, you are foolish, and you do foolish things. No witch doctor is going to cure that. Peter no longer glanced about the room. His eyes were fixed on the colonel. His bony shoulders were hunched. He appeared to stoop. Oh, he looked so fine, the colonel said, as though speaking to Linda again, but he wasn't looking at her. So polished. He held out his open palm and raised it up and down. Pass by the door of his quarters, and it's all you can do to keep yourself from being sick. In his thin face, Peter's eyes had begun to stare and shine. His mouth was loose. Give me the keys, Peter. Keys in Volkswagen, sir. Bobby pushed his plate aside. Linda kicked him below the table. Bobby settled back. The colonel saw. He looked away from Peter to the floor near Bobby's feet, and he seemed to grow abstracted. He made a gesture with his index finger. How wide is the hotel lot, Peter? 150 feet, sir. And deep? 200 feet. And in those 30,000 square feet, I am in charge. I don't care what happens outside. I am in charge here. If you don't like what I do, get out. Get out at once. 
Bobby pressed a finger on the tablecloth and picked up a crumb. What do you think of me, Peter? I like you, sir. He likes me. Peter likes me. You take me in when I was small, sir. You give me job. You give me quarters. You look after my children. He has 14, the colonel said. He's living with three of those animals right now. So polished, so nice, so well-spoken. You wouldn't believe he doesn't even know how to hold a pen in those hands. You wouldn't believe the filth he comes out of. But you like dirt, don't you, Peter? You like going into some black hole to eat filth and dance naked. You will steal and lie to do that, won't you? I like the quarters, sir. While I live, you will stay there. You won't move in here, Peter. I don't want you to bank on that. If I die, you will starve, Peter. You will go back to Bush. That is true, sir. And you like me. I'm good to you, but I haven't been good to you. In this room, we've had people talking about exterminating you. Don't you remember? I don't remember, sir. You're a liar. I like you, sir. What about the boy who was locked in the refrigerator? Peter said that was somewhere else. Oh, so you remember that. I never talk about these things, sir. The whippings. There's a lot of that. What about the crops you weren't allowed to grow? You remember that? You say you like me? I hate you, sir. Of course you hate me. And I know you hate me. Last week you killed that South African. Old, helpless, didn't you? Lived here for 20 years. Married one of your women. Thief kill him, sir. That's what they always say, Peter. But we know who killed him. It was someone who hated him. No, sir. Do you remember when your woman was sick, Peter? You know about that, sir. Tell me again. Peter's staring eyes were inflamed, moist with tears of irritation. His half-open mouth was collapsed, the upper part of his face taut. It's a story you always tell, the colonel said. Visitors always listen. Timothy, the waiter, was leaning against one of the square pillars in the middle of the room, head back, slightly to one side, looking on. My wife was sick, Peter said. He stopped, choked with irritation. You had three others, the colonel said. Go on. She cry every night in the quarters, black with filth and stink, the colonel said. One night, she was very sick. I get car and take her to hospital. They say no. Hospital for Europeans only. Huts for natives. Indian doctor take her too late, sir, she die. And you went out the next day, the colonel said, and got other women, and you sent them to the forest to chop wood, and they loaded up the wood on their backs, and they came back to you in the evening. It's a good story, especially for visitors. I never talk about these things, sir. Who do you hate more, the Indian or me? I hate the Indian, Peter said. You are ungrateful. Who do you hate more, the Indian or me? I will always hate you, sir. Don't you forget it. Your hate will keep me alive. One night, Peter, you will knock on my door. No, sir. You will be wearing a raincoat or you will have a jacket. You will be holding your elbows close to your side. No, sir. No, sir. Peter was closing and opening his eyes. I won't behave like the South African, Peter. When you say, good evening, sir, I won't say... Why, it's Peter, my own boy. Come in, Peter. Have some tea. How are you? How's your family? 
There'll be no cups of tea. I won't behave like that. I'll be waiting. I'll say, it's Peter. Peter hates me. And you won't come past that door. I'll kill you. I'll shoot you dead. Peter opened his eyes and looked at the top of the colonel's head. This is how I swear my oath, the colonel said. Under these lights, in the open, before witnesses, tell your friends. For some time, Peter stood looking at the top of the colonel's head. His mouth closed, became firm again. There were no tears in his inflamed eyes. He put his hand in the pocket of his khaki trousers and took out a key ring with two keys. He was going to place it on the table, but the colonel held out his palm, and Peter put the keys in the colonel's palm. There was nothing more to keep him, and with a step as light and springy and athletic as before, he walked through the dining room to the kitchen. The colonel didn't look at anyone else in the room. He took up a glass of water, but his old blotched hands trembled, and he put the glass down. That's from Inner Freestead. This podcast has been brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU in conjunction with the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Our producers are Annika Kaundinya and Ben Branstein. Our thanks to Uli Baer and for their technical and design acumen, Aaron Dowdy and Selena Lacazzi. For more information, or if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at, and this is one word, nyihumanities.org. Again, that's nyihumanities.org. 